I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back to this Monday, af- this Monday afternoon episode of Live. But look, that's a terrible start already. It's you and I joining each other here for the first time, and I'm already stumbling over my words. Good sign for the week to come. Uh, let's hope not. October 6th, there was a news report about a woman who had gone missing from California, 38 years old, Holly Cortier. Uh, the report was that she had boarded a bus at Zion National Park, one of these uh, buses that drops you off, lets you do some hiking, and then you uh, typically return to the bus and then are brought back to the parking lot. Well, she got on the bus. She was dropped off, and at about 4.30 that afternoon, it was expected that she would uh, rejoin those who uh, were using that bus and be returned to the parking lot. Well, she, uh, she didn't get back on the bus, and the days started ticking by. And as you well know, you know, you've been paying attention to news stories like this over the years. Uh, When one, two, three days go by, uh, the rescue efforts transition into recovery efforts. And the cadaver dogs are brought out and the family starts to mourn and, and unfortunate realities start to set in. Well, yesterday we learned that this was not to be one of those stories. And that after 12 days, reportedly alone... Holly Cortier was discovered uh, alive and well, so to speak. Had some dehydration, it's been reported. Uh, a sister of hers said that she had some bruises on her body, uh, and uh, and she she was found. KSL News Radio's Debbie Dejanovic has, throughout the morning today, been combing over the details of this story, been speaking with those who find themselves involved in search and rescue efforts, uh, and joins us now to talk at greater length about what we know and, more to the point, what we don't know. There's a lot we do not know. In fact, I think we know less than than we probably should at this point. There are so many questions that need to be answered. Did she just want to go off the grid for a few days? Why, if she wanted to go off the grid for a few days, did she not leave behind an itinerary, uh, take her cell phone? Although cell phones don't always work in Zion National Park, still, it's pretty unusual not to take your cell phone with absolutely, you. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, why didn't family members know of her plans to stay, if she had planned to stay? And how in the world did a day trip turn into a 12-day journey? How did rescuers miss her? They had to cover 232 Uh, square miles of territory. That is a good deal of territory. If you've ever been um, in this area of the country or the back country at all, you know, the elevation can be several thousand feet. So there could be areas that uh, people can, um, you know, take shelter in and not be seen. These are all questions that we're asking today, Lee, because we quite frankly don't know um, what happened, how she disappeared, why she disappeared, and how she survived for 12 days if she was just supposed to be 
On a day hike. Uh, on a day hike, as you well know, and all listeners know who have ever been out uh, for a hike themselves, a day hike includes, uh, you know, maybe a few liters of water, uh, and, that, and that's preparing, you know, heavily. Uh, maybe you'll have a granola bar or two, and you'll certainly have your, your cell phone, but not much beyond that for uh, a day hike. And somehow uh, she's able to survive 12 days under w- with, you know, with arguably uh, a day hike's worth of supplies. Her family described her as an avid hiker. Uh, you and I, well, you trail run. Sure. I I hike pretty regularly a couple of times a week. I don't know if my family would describe me as an avid hiker, but they would probably describe me as a prepared hiker. And Proficient. Most, yeah. And conscientious. And, and most people who hike, and she has been said to have been hiking um, in national parks across the country, according to CBS News, after she lost her job because of the pandemic. Um if she's an avid hiker, I'd have to ask the question, then Then why were you not prepared? Um, those basic things uh, like leaving an itinerary behind for your family, taking, um, you know, leaving, a, you know, a date and time, not only when you're going to be back, but the trail that you're going to take. And certainly letting people know, like, look, if I'm not back by this time on this date, uh, there's a problem. Yeah. L- logistical courtesies uh, to for those uh, you, you leave behind. You, she has four sisters. None of them knew uh, what her where her whereabouts were or what her plans were. She has a daughter, didn't know her whereabouts. I think about uh, years ago there was a, a John Krakauer book called Into the Wild, and it documents the story of Christopher McCandless, super tramp, later made into a movie. And uh, he did something where he uh, you know, he was kind of done with society. Uh, he started traveling north, made his way to Alaska, and did not uh, report his itinerary, did not let it be known to uh, to his family what he was up to. And the, the great disservice, you know, the, the, the general frets and worries that you might imagine, his family certainly endured. Uh, his mom had great mental, mental troubles uh, after that. The stress... The stress imposed by uh, foregoing those logistical charities uh, and considerations is just unimaginable. I couldn't help but listen to uh, her sister's, um, it seemed like despair today, even after her sister has been found alive. Clearly a very happy moment. But we played an audio clip uh, this morning on the Dave and Dujanovic show where the sister talked about almost stumbling and falling. And I thought to myself in that moment, Lee, that how many lives... Uh, might have been risked uh, just because of this one particular incident where everybody runs in to save one person because they don't know where they are. I went out with um, a very experienced hiker and we actually said, you know what, we're going to step off the trails. We're going to look where she could be. Now, at one point, we're hanging on the edge of a cliff and rocks are falling on us. And I, I thought, oh my gosh, if this is my sister, you know, I didn't at one point think, how could she live through this? And that is that is a real question that de- that demands an answer. If it was a day hike, wherever that notion of her venturing out into a day hike, somehow being able to survive for 12 days requires either incredible luck. Did she stumble upon a cooler out in the out in the wilderness, out in the National Park there that had food sufficient to last her these twelve days, uh, but you need you, you're not going more than two three days without water, uh, and, and you're sure as heck at that stage twelve days uh, you're gonna, you're going to need some calories regardless of whether or not you're staying still. The temperatures have been dropping. There, how she survived those twelve days from a, a caloric intake, from a water, from a hydration standpoint is is something that I am very eager to learn. 
There were also a slew of resources brought in for this, uh, besides family members uh, setting up a GoFundMe to help fund this search, which is now at $11,000. Canines were brought in, drones were brought in, crews scouring the national park. Uh, You know, it's 143,000 acres of territory, 232 square miles, according to what I'm reading. And, and, who pays for that? Exactly. Um, we talked to Utah County Sergeant uh, Spencer Cannon uh, this morning. They weren't a part of this particular rescue down south, but still they have a ton of experience in Utah County and search and rescues. And he said they have made the decision there not to go back and charge, financially charge um, or cash in from the family the money that is um spent on these search and rescues. These can cost anywhere. The average is about $2,000 for a search and rescue. But clearly in this case, given all of the resources, the air and ground support, this could go into the, the tens of thousands tens of, of thousands. dollars. We're talking nearly two weeks. We're talking about a great expanse of, of terrain there and uh, and all of the, the people and the dogs, everything that you've described that went into that. That's, that's not cheap. Uh, but but I under I understand what uh, what Sergeant Cannon uh, there has to say. It makes sense because as soon as you put a price tag on something, as we've seen with say like COVID itself, uh, I have friends who have foregone ambulance rides because all of that does incur a cost. And if you're out uh, in the back country and you are stranded, if you are fearful of the cost you might incur, you may make an unwise decision that costs you your life. Uh, Sergeant Cannon shared a story during our show today, and he said there was a time when um, a couple had uh, you know gone overboard on a boat. And they Thankfully, they had life jackets on Utah Lake, and as search and rescue arrived on Utah Lake, and if you've ever been on a boat on Utah Lake, you can know the winds can change yeah. uh, in, in an instant. Um, and as they closed in to save this young couple, the man raised his hand and said, how much is this going to cost me? While he's in the water. While he's in the water. So clearly that was a big concern. And what Sergeant Canner, Cannon didn't know for sure if it cost him the relationship, maybe, <laughs> but it did not cost them their lives, and they did not, uh, you know, bill them at all. They did not have that couple foot the bill, and that is traditionally what happens. Um, I think as we learn more details throughout the day here, yeah. we will see what happens in this particular case because there can be as many as a hundred rescues a, a year or a season, and these counties, taxpayers, are the ones footing the bill. Yeah. Uh, Debbie Dejanovic, thank you so much for your coverage on this. Thank you for the conversation. You can hear Debbie every morning from 9 to 11 with her co-host, Dave Noriega. Wonderful having you here. Thanks again, Debbie. Thanks, Lee. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going to be joined by Sean Roundy, a member of the Utah County Sheriff's Search and Rescue. What exactly goes into rescues when someone reaches out and they are in need of help, severe, extreme help in difficult terrain? What happens? What are the resources that are deployed, and what are the tactics used by those involved? Involved in search and rescue. Sean Roundy, my guest next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Welcome back to Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry. We've been covering the interesting story of a woman named Holly Cortier, who was just yesterday found alive in Zion National Park, had been missing for 12 days. And a number of questions have arisen since uh, the, the discovery of this woman alive. How was it? that she was able to survive these 12 days? Was it her intention to be uh, off the grid for those 12 days? And as details continue to be discovered on this story, you can count on hearing them here 
on KSL News Radio. Stepping aside uh, from the specifics of this case, I want to, uh, as we continue this conversation, get a better sense of what goes into the types of search and rescue operations uh, that are deployed when uh, someone goes missing in a region such as this. Uh, joining me uh, on the program now is Sean Roundy. We'll hear uh, from him some of the challenges that rescuers face when they venture out into Utah's mountains to bring the lost or stranded back to safety. Mr. Roundy, welcome to the program. How are you? Thanks, Lee. Glad to be here. I'm doing great. You've now spent about two decades working search and rescue in the unique geographical regions that Utah presents. You've written at great length about what it takes to pull off challenging rescues and bring people home safely, and also uh, what happens when things don't exactly work out. Let me first off ask you, what's the longest successful search effort you've ever been a part of? The longest one I've been on was six months to the day. It was an avalanche on the on New Year's Eve on the backside of Timpanogos, and there were two, and it was snowing three inches per hour, so extremely unstable snow, bad conditions. Happily, I think people are a lot more aware of the avalanche forecast now, and so there's, I'm sure that has saved dozens of lives. But six months later, we had a plane flying over. We had done lots of searching, and they spotted something red showing through the snow, and it was his coat sleeve. So we were able to finally get some closure there. I, I imagine that, uh, that that story there ends in, in the death of that backcountry skier. Uh, can you tell me the longest uh, successful search and rescue effort you've been a part of, where someone goes missing, uh, search and rescue is deployed, and then uh, the, the good news at the end there is that uh, someone is found uh, alive, if not alive and well? Good question. I'll have to think about that for a minute. I was thinking this morning about one about a year ago up near Rivoli County, Montana, of an Orem man. Um, some of his neighbors were friends of mine, so and I and I know the team up there in Rivoli. I work with them a little bit with the Mountain Rescue Association, and he was gone for just about a week. And when it's that long, you really begin to fear the worst and kind of change your strategies, not looking for someone who can be responsive. Because you you can survive for a surprisingly long time without food, but not when you need it to keep you warm. Um, but it turns out he was injured, and luckily he was better prepared than the average person out in the background, that country, and he survived, and that was a very pleasant surprise. You mentioned being able to survive a surprisingly long amount of time uh, without food. If I remember if I remember correctly from the Boy Scout days, it was uh, two minutes without air, two days without water, two weeks without food. A- any truth to that? And w- what is the human body capable of uh, of enduring? Yeah, I think that's relatively accurate. I, you can actually, and depends on your weight and other conditions, of course. Uh, but I think you can survive three, maybe four weeks in some cases without food. Uh, you hear tales of people lost at sea, for example. Mm. But I certainly wouldn't want to try that crash diet program. No, not at all. Uh, sort of a, a darker question. At what stage typically does the search effort transition from uh, a rescue to, say, a recovery, which requires the use of cadaver dogs or other methods? It, of course, varies very much depending on the conditions. It's October now, and I'm sure this woman spent some cool, uncomfortable nights but if there if it had rained, if uh, you know, if she was unprepared with clothing and stuff, if we, you know, you kind of stack, you kind of calculate the odds roughly and think, 
what are the chances this person is still alive? And as you reach those points, you have to consider all the other things going on. Now, in national parks, they're fortunate because they have the rescue rangers. It's their job to go and manage these searches, and that's fantastic. Uh, in the vast majority of other areas, this is, these things are handled by volunteers in association with uh, sheriff organizations like in, in, the, in the West primarily. And so you have to consider they're leaving their jobs, they're leaving their families, they have other rescue missions going on, you don't want to burn them out too much. And sometimes they narrow it down. Like last Saturday, I spent the day with uh, my motorcycle team covering some area looking for, uh, last Sunday, I guess, looking for someone who'd been missing for about a week. And uh, and then they announced something we were, an object we were looking for in conjunction with this missing person. And within half an hour, someone from the public called up and said, yeah, we found that. And so that helped narrow our search area down extremely, and we found them within about 10 minutes after that. So, yeah, there's a lot of considerations going on with the avalanche one I mentioned. As soon as conditions got safe enough that we could go up there, we flew up and, and combed the area as well as we could, but the avalanche debris piles were 30, 40, maybe deeper feet deep, and so we had to wait for that to melt down, and, and we just continued flights and, and dogs now and then. We're speaking with Sean Roundy, member of the Utah County Sheriff Search and Rescue and the Mountain Rescue Association. He's the Intermountain Region Chair. Uh, Mr. Roundy, you have written and discussed two general types of people who require rescue, those who are unlucky versus those who are unprepared. Can you talk to me a bit about those two categories? Yes. Uh, you know, with COVID these days going on and all the things that we can't do, going to movies and stuff, there, we have all noticed that there are a lot more people out hiking in the backcountry, and why not? It's beautiful, and generally it's safe, but a lot of these people are novices, and maybe they don't know about the 10 essentials. Maybe it's warm now, and they don't realize it's going to be really cold later today and when they get to higher elevation, um, so there are a lot of unprepared people, and... The second category, even if people are well-prepared and very experienced, you can still twist an ankle in somewhere very remote and inaccessible and have really no way to get yourself down. As far as how search and rescue responds or treats these individuals, it's not much different. Like, people have learned their lesson, so we're going to have a good time and try and lift their spirits and not look down on them. But we appreciate it when people do take precautions and bring food and water and lighting and and those essentials. I, uh, last question here for you. Again, we're speaking with Sean Roundy. Uh, the, I won't ask you specifically about this Courtier case, but have you ever have you ever encountered a, a subject, someone who you were searching for, uh, who turned out not to want to be found? Yes, and this is not uncommon with sometimes autistic people, sometimes youth who are trying to get away from their family maybe most often tragically with suicides. And that really does change the technique because you can't just walk along a trail or, or do a wide grid search and call out their name and hope they'll respond. You have to really watch. The most interesting case of this was a team just in the foothills above my home about 15 years ago. And he had run away from home and didn't want to be found. And one of our sheriff's deputies working with us he looked up the mountain, and he saw the deer 
turning their heads and watching something in between our search parties. And he realized that was the kid we were looking for kind of running away from us. So we guided our search team to just kind of corral or steer the boy. And when he made a dart across to run behind some home backyard, there was an officer waiting for him there. Fascinating. Uh, listen, Mr. Roundy, thank you so much for your, your insight and your expertise here. And more than any of that, thank you for your decades now uh, of service, being the one who answers the call when someone uh, out recreating or having fun in these great, beautiful Utah mountains finds themselves into some trouble, uh, knowing that folks like you are there ready to answer the call, uh, respond to the pager, and hop to uh, quickly is, uh, is a comforting thing. And I thank you personally, and I'm sure there are many families out there over the two decades of your career uh, who have equal thanks to, to offer in your direction. Thanks again. You're welcome, Lee, and I can speak, I think, for all volunteers out there that it's a a pleasure and a privilege to be able to make this kind of contribution. So stay safe, everybody. All right. Very good. We're going to take a break here in a moment, and when we return, uh, we're going to change directions a a little bit, and we're going to have a look at some comments made by Dr. Anthony Fauci yesterday on 60 Minutes. I don't typically watch the news on Sunday. That's family time, but that changed yesterday due to some of the questions asked of Dr. Fauci and more importantly, the answers he gave. Those are coming up next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America, but this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin, and my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, will find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.